0: Welcome back to The Pilgrim Soul, a podcast about the journey of faith in the world of today. I'm your host, Sophia. And I'm Adriana. And I'm Juliana. And welcome to our episode on restlessness. I'm excited to discuss this topic with you today. Um, When I told my friends that this is what we're recording on, several of (laughs) them (laughs) have. I've actually burst out laughing, saying that I certainly have a lot of content from my own life as a (laughs) deeply (laughs) restless and constantly dissatisfied person. And so as this is a central aspect of my personality, I'm excited to explore it with you today to understand how restlessness can be a positive dynamic in the life of faith. I was moved to propose this as a topic uh, because of my observations of the culture that we live in and also how I've been formed by that culture. Um, Because I think that our generation, although I'm actually a Gen Z, whereas I know I'm speaking to two millennials here, so I'll say um, (laughs) our generations, plural. Our generations are deeply restless. Um, I think we see this in our relentless thirst for novelty, whether that's in work or in relationships or even the cities that we call home. Mm -hmm. Also in a fixation on having the, the maximum number of choices in front of us, open to us at any given moment, and in other symptoms. And and yet I don't see that our generations respond to this restlessness. We, we don't go to the bottom of it. We don't ask what it says about our hearts. We don't look for something that will actually satisfy it. I think instead I see a lot of, we tend to numb it or anesthetize it. We detach from reality, whether that's through escapism or filling our minds and eyes with with such noise, honestly, from social media and Netflix and and not just entertainment, but uh, political and cultural ideologies as well, or even just trying to follow a cultural script of what we think is going to make us successful at work and in life. Um, But none of these things ultimately satisfy. So I'm really eager to explore with you today how to go back to our episode on joy, how potentially the path to our fulfillment passes through restlessness That we have to learn how to respond to this. We have to make this a dynamic of our spiritual life if we're going to be happy.
1: Thank you, Sophia. From my own experience, what I think is also really powerful about this episode topic is that I've definitely tried all these worldly efforts that you've suggested, like Netflix or distraction or escapism, to tolerate or cope with my restlessness. And I found them more dissatisfying and less able to make me live out the best version of myself, to carry my cross, and to really be a disciple of Jesus, a mother to my children, a a wife to my husband. So I guess just like in verifying through my own experience, these proposals given by the world haven't been able to channel my restlessness towards goodness.
2: I guess I would say, looking at my own experience, that coming face-to-face with my restlessness has been probably the defining force in my conversion, Mm. in my desire to truly give my life over to God. And because of that, I'm deeply grateful for it. I think it's easy. I mean, we hear the word restlessness. It has negative connotations. We're talking about the ways that we can misuse our restlessness. But I think at its core, it is, in fact, a positive thing because it leads me to God. Um, mm-hmm. I think both of you are characterizing for me the utility of restlessness.
0: You're both showing that it can serve as an indicator of the structural disproportion that exists between my heart and what's in front of me. So in other words, that that restlessness can unmask the incompleteness, I guess I would say, of my own attempts to fulfill my life, that, that I'm waiting for something more. And in this sense it can be something Julie as you said that can lead us to God not automatically of course but if i recognize that wow like clearly my heart is waiting for someone mm-hmm. for something that can fulfill me completely this recognition can then serve as a provocation for begging for that to happen it can be it can be a starting point for prayer for asking for the mystery to enter and to answer this restlessness does that does that make sense
1: yeah i appreciate that sophia it makes me think of Carol Houselander and the opening of her book, Read of God and Emptiness. Mm. And she talks about Mary's emptiness as a purposeful emptiness, like a nest that has an appropriate sized emptiness for an egg, or a reed that has an appropriate emptiness to be filled with the breath of the piper, she says. It so strikes me how that corresponds to restlessness, because it It is an emptiness inside of us, and is that emptiness nothingness in a deep, dark void that we have to, like, sort of avoid looking at, or is it like a womb waiting for life to be born? Wow.
2: Yeah, I also find helpful from uh, this quote from the Catechism. It says, The desire for God is written in the human heart. Man is created by God and for God, and God never ceases to draw man to himself. Only in God will man find the truth and happiness that he never stops searching for. So this is like what you're saying, Adriana, like we have this desire. We are created with this desire as written in our hearts. And the desire is for God. We can let our desire lead us in different places. But in God, we will find the truth and happiness, kind of the the fullness that completes that, uh, that writing on our hearts.
0: The phrase that struck me from the quote that you read was that, Our heart never stops searching for him. It's ineradicable, this restlessness. Our hearts, of course, that famous line from St. Augustine that probably every Catholic knows, our hearts are restless until they rest in God. Right, right. Structurally, they're restless. And so no matter how many attempts you make to to stifle this or suppress this or numb and no matter how successful you might be for a time, it'll come back roaring bigger than ever and Mm And in my own life, I definitely experienced this most dramatically. I talked about this time of my life on our last episode, too, the episode on the cross um, in high school, that I I discovered this at the bottom of nihilism, honestly, that my attempts to fulfill my own life were so incomplete that they led to my own death, the death of my desires. And yet there was something that I couldn't get rid of. We read um, my senior year in AP English, Dostoevsky's Notes from Underground, Which hit me as someone, you know, grappling with nihilism at the time. And there was this line in it, something like, there's something in me that won't die. Something in the depths of my heart and my conscience that won't die. And that struck me like, I have made so many attempts to stifle this longing, this dissatisfaction with what the party culture could offer. Mm -hmm. To fill this hole with a perfection of my own making perfection of my reputation or my appearance or my accomplishments or what have you but but there was something deeper that wouldn't die and one of my friends says to me now all the time that that God's love language is frustration God's love language is dissatisfaction that that's God's way of saying look at me me it's me that you want of recalling me to him in love and And I'm so grateful now for the fact that this restlessness won't die. I thank God that I feel dissatisfaction and the inadequacy of what I live and frustration with what's heavy and unfulfilling in my life, because this is the task of reality. It's to call us to go further up and further in, to awaken in us the questions that only the Lord can answer. And... This gaze on reality and on restlessness isn't something that I see in contemporary culture at all. Our restlessness is not a friend. um, But when it does become a friend, then the circumstances of your life aren't an enemy anymore. They're, They're the path to your fulfillment. And in my experience, at least, all of life changes when restlessness can become a friend. Yeah.
2: Thank you for sharing that, Sophia. I think, yeah, it's so true. I think we can all look back on our experience and see that this is true for us. When I think about my experience in particular, I see how much I need people and things to awaken my restlessness because on my own, I think when I look back, I can see that it's very easy for me instead of spiraling into despair and nihilism as you're describing it can be easy for me and in the past I have just I can live at 50% and Mm. you know it's like not so bad I'm kind of content um Mm -hmm. I think about you know my early years in college and I had a great life I had good friends I was pretty happy but then I had this this experience where I spent some extended time with some friends in the movement and I realized that they had something more beautiful they had something I didn't have, and I was really attracted to it. And this sharing of life with these people—that's what awakened my restlessness, and and that's what made me start looking at my life and say, "Wait a minute! Like there is something more, and and I want that more." And I started, you know, making changes in my life and um, pursuing this this restlessness where it would lead me and where it did lead me was eventually into relationship with my husband in pursuit of a prayer life, um, an authentic prayer life. And, you know, that's a lifelong journey. Okay, that's that's a lifelong journey. But I see, you know, for me, it was those friends. Now it's other friends. It's the mountains. It's a beautiful song. Mm -hmm. I constantly need examples and beauty outside of me to awaken my restlessness and remind me who will answer it, to remind me the answer. Because on my own, I think I can forget, like I can Mm -hmm. be numb. I can fall into like anesthesia, essentially. I see this in our culture too. I I know it's not just me.
1: Yeah, I really appreciate what you've both said. And Sophia, I'm struck by the question of how to make restlessness my friend. Yeah. Because you're proposing like an intimacy with our restlessness, a friendship with it. That I think is so countercultural. And whether or not it's an emptiness or even just like seeing it as all of these stressors in your life that you are unable to cope with, I think principally it's impossible to make restlessness your friend without believing that there's meaning in the restlessness. Mm -hmm. And what I'm hearing from you, Julie, is that in order to believe metaphysically, philosophically, that there's meaning in your restlessness, you had to encounter that in another person in your incarnate body. And I think that helps, that makes possible the Christian journey with restlessness, which is that restlessness may first appear in one's life as a negative, as something totally dissatisfying, drawing you seemingly into darkness or into the belly of the whale where Jonah calls God where where God calls Jonah. But through that conversion of heart and through a total giving of oneself into discipleship, that restlessness becomes fuel, like bread for the journey in a way. And I guess I just think of so many of the saints, I'm thinking specifically like of St. Paul. Mm. And after his conversion, he doesn't rest. He's He goes, like, throughout all of Europe, and he's writing letters everywhere and visiting everywhere and arguing with people and sharing the gospel and fighting with Barnabas and then reconciling. It was just – he's so dynamic, and it's all for Christ. And it doesn't have to be this really active apostolate. Like, none of us are going to live the exact template of St. Paul. But I even think of, like, monastic orders or – the Benedictines who I just spent time with and their restlessness for contemplative prayer. Mm-hmm. Yes, And it seems like maybe paradoxical to put restlessness and contemplation together until you see it in front of you. There, you know, is a two minute long bell ringing at 5 AM every single day for lauds morning prayer and followed by all the rest of the liturgy, the hours throughout the day. And it's just honestly shocking how, Much time is spent in prayer Mm -hmm. and this like desire and restless energy for that, that the monks live, they embody it. I love
0: the examples that you're both sharing. Uh, Julie, these people who awoke in you, desires that you didn't even know that you had. It makes me think of John the Baptist. Um, It's Advent now as we record and And this is what he did. He awakened in people the desire for one who could take away their sins, these are the voices of people who cry out in the wilderness saying, like, wake up, you want more. And that's the task of each of us um, as baptized. We're we're prophets. And Adriana, what you were saying about restlessness only becoming positive in the presence of another before someone in front of us who says this is what it's for. Um, and I'm reminded of my time in Paraguay and the summer that I spent with Father Aldo, uh, working with kids who had experienced all kinds of serious difficulties. And it was a deeply restless summer. I was restless before um, the suffering of these children and my own wretched inability to be present to them and to the dying and my loneliness as I was isolated in this foreign culture. And suffice to say, I wanted to leave like on a daily basis, but it was precisely in this restlessness that I was given the possibility of perceiving the answer that Christ brings especially in the presence of the eucharist and of father aldo's presence at mass and and with the dying he gave me an indication of the abundance that responds to this infinite desire that exists within me and perhaps paradoxically this experience didn't do away with the restlessness that i was experiencing but increased it mm-hmm. Because it's precisely it's that was God drawing near to my human life and showing me like, yeah, Sophie, your life is futile in relationship to its ultimate meaning, its ultimate purpose without my initiative of mercy. And so rather than doing away with this restlessness, it just it set me on a path Um, and companionship continues to be essential to living this dynamic of restlessness, to living with restlessness as a friend rather than a problem to resolve. And one thing I I wanted to pick up on, one final thing that I wanted to pick up on um, was what you were saying about the Benedictine tradition. I love that because for me, it makes clear that you need a rule if you're going to follow this dynamic, if you're going to allow it to keep you on the path rather than serving as a provocation to leave it. I think of etymologically rule um like the rule of saint benedict it comes from the word for ruler like just like a straight stick like something that's supposed to serve as a guide mm-hmm. something that keeps us on the path of following after him and yeah they experience it in praying the liturgy of the hours i do too but but we we all need rules not as you know a set of things to follow to be a good person a checklist but but as a form that enables Adriana, as you were saying, the desires of our heart to become fuel for the journey Mm -hmm. rather than things that take us away from what's actually going to fulfill them. And so I think of, I mean, you mentioned your marriage and, and children and the companionship of the movement. Like these are the rules that keep us on the path.
1: Yes. I mean, as lay apostolate, like belonging to the church involves rules and a rhythm of life and a pattern that's for us. You know, the Sabbath is for man, not for God. But what I think I'm hearing, what we're all trying to say is that I can't help but share Augustine's quote, my heart is restless until it rests in thee, O Lord. But resting in God and finding that peace of heart in God is only possible with like this dynamic energy of understanding discipleship as going forth and making disciples of all nations and baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit and having begging for that to happen to me again too like it's not just external
0: exactly yeah
1: and i'm curious where if you can share where you've seen that in your own experience of the dynamism present within a piece of heart
2: i think this is so true i i see my restlessness and my desire as when lived properly when properly ordered a prayer a crying out to god It reminds me of, it was just in the office from the other day, but uh, this line from St. Anselm. (laughs) um, Yes. It's, Lord, let me seek you by desiring you, and let me desire you by seeking you, right? So this is like our prayer. And then he answers, and he answers by giving us peace and by giving us himself. And Jesus promised us, you know, my peace I give to you. My peace is not the peace of the world. And the words of God, they have creative force. Um, they go forth from the mouth of God and they don't return empty. I mean, this is not the way that that we speak. These are the words of the creator. Um, and so he is imparting to us a very concrete gift. And I see this in my life when I was little um, when I was like in early grade school, and I, whenever I made a mistake, it just completely wrecked me. Okay, I think I was in first grade once, and I forgot to put my name on my paper, and then I had to like skip recess or something. I don't remember, and I was like crying, and I had to write my name fifty times on a piece of paper, and it was just, I just, <laughs> it was like the end of the world, right? And I can think of other examples. Like I remember the first time I got a B plus, and It was just this grasping. I had this desire, you know, to be loved and to feel worthy, but it was disordered and I thought that I could reach it by being perfect in an academic setting. And I didn't realize there was an other that I should direct that desire toward instead of myself. And because of that, it just created anxiety. And I think now with this education and with this, that, that's rooted in my experience and the people that I follow in the church that only God can satisfy my desire. I can instead take these mini earthquakes or these things that happen externally that would cause me to lose my peace and to use them, or I try to use them as an opportunity to remember who can satisfy me Yeah. and to just let, let that bring me to the altar instead of looking inward. Um, like I said it's a lifelong journey and I need companionship with this and I think this is what you were saying earlier Sophia but for me life in the movement is so helpful because the movement it takes the people in the movement they take my restlessness seriously and they encourage me to be restless in every area of life like there's nothing off limits like I need to be restless in my job and in my family and and in my friendships and I think it's a charism that's just so responsive to the needs of our modern age and and my own needs. It's such a help to me to kind of learn this dynamic crying out and receiving.
0: That's such a beautiful example, Julie, and I agree with your judgment about the charism. The example that came to my mind, Adriana, in response to your question is <laughs> perhaps a much more banal one. Um, I was responsible for organizing together with my group here in Cambridge last week a two-day conference on neuroscience and education, basically. And I was dreading it for a variety of reasons, Um, fatigue and lack of interest and all sorts of things. And as the conference began, I was, from the start, very restless, wanting to be elsewhere. Um, At first, in this very negative sense, that it it was born of a judgment that the practitioners and the academics around me were very far from the truth, in the sense that, yeah, I saw many of them immersed in ideology or uh, embracing assumptions at the foundation of their work that <laughs> I disagree with and, and that I wanted so much more to be able to be in a place where we acknowledge that the purpose of education is not just the acquisition of skills or not just equality and inclusion, but openness to the transcendent. Like, mm-hmm. But because of my restlessness and my dissatisfaction, I couldn't go into it just hoping that it would be a success and that the delegates would be happy and that, you know, it would be over with a minimal amount of pain. Like, I needed more. My restlessness was so acute that I knew I needed to see something beautiful for me there that day or I would suffocate. And, um, and so I addressed this question to the Lord, to a you, like you, why have you put me here? Where are you in this? Like, what's the value of this conversation of these people that comes from you? But as you were saying, Julie, like this you is a mystery. And so I acknowledged like, Lord, I don't know what I need. I don't know you. As John the Baptist says in in the first chapter of St. John, like among you stands one who you don't know. You are a mystery, Lord. And yet today is given to me as a chance to discover you. Um, and so what rose in me was this awareness that that I need this conference to arrive at the mystery that that I desire, but that I don't know. And what happened over the course of the next two days is that I discovered a huge gratitude for the people around me because I saw in them the the recognition of the dignity and value of each child and a passion for The flourishing of every individual with neurodevelopmental disorders and diseases and a gaze of esteem on children that was inaugurated, was initiated into the world by Christianity, you know, before before which infanticide was common. Like it's only the gospel and only the gaze of the Lord on children that taught us the value of each life and made work such as this something attractive and beautiful and possible. And so I arrived at the end of the conference so aware that like, Lord, these people aren't using your name and they don't seem to be living lives that are in conformity with, with your truth. And yet I see your glory in them and in the work that they're trying to do. And I want this glory to increase <sighs> and to increase in the world, but also to <laughs> to increase in me, because this is a passion. This is a love that that I don't have to this extent. And and so I left the conference grateful and moved and not just, you know, grateful that it was over and I could rest and my supervisor was happy and but Grateful that I discovered him in a new way, that I'd gotten to know him better, mm-hmm. and grateful too for my restlessness, without which I would have, you know, stayed with what I thought I needed. I would have missed the opportunity that he had in store for me.
1: Wow, Sophia, I so appreciate that example and I don't experience it as banal at all. I think I'm really receiving like encouragement from you to take a situation where you think you know everything about it. I can think of so many situations in my everyday life like that I know how this is going to go I don't really want to be here so I'm just going to sort of like exist and damage control yeah and instead of that route which I think is my most common route you asked a question of the Lord of where can I discover you here and then walked that journey with curiosity and openness which I think takes a lot of courage and persistence. And I'm really, I feel motivated to try that again. in in my own life, like, like Ezekiel, Lord, God asking, like, can these dead bones live? I'm usually just like, oh, I've already seen that graveyard.
0: No, no need to go back. Yeah. 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 The words that were echoing in my mind in those days that helped me respond this way, because there are Certainly more times than I don't. Um, We're from the spiritual exercises this last year. Uh, Father LePoria at some point, I think in the assembly said, like, what do you do with the relentless dissatisfaction that you experience in everything? Mm -hmm. Do you drag it into a continual complaint or do you let it become a question, a place of verifying that there is another who who fulfills you um, and who comes to you? And yeah, life is so much more beautiful when i take the second of the two paths there yeah
1: yes that's what i think is so just amazing is that the beauty of life is shown to us through these just really small efforts to ask and be open to being surprised by god
0: yeah which shows us that it's him Like, if I think about the utility of restlessness in my life, I think it strips away images that I have of reality and puts me back in in dialogue with God. Yeah. And I think I see this most clearly in (laughs) the manifold, unfulfilled desires that I have for my life, whether that's in work, as I talked about on the last episode, or in relationships, or in my desire for a home. My restlessness in all these places keeps me asking for an answer from the Lord, just as Christ himself did. I mean, he who said that... He had nowhere to lay his head and his food was to do the will of the one who sent him. Like, Christ was one who was, was restless in a sense. He was dissatisfied, right? Longing. So my own unfulfillment is useful because it's an occasion to be conformed to him. It puts me in a relationship to Christ like the one he had to the Father. It gives me an opportunity to beg from him and not from the ideas that I have already in mind of how these areas of my life are going to be resolved. And I know we've talked about him before on the podcast, but uh, the saint who came to mind as I was reflecting on this mystery was Cardinal Van Thuan, who, yeah. for our listeners who don't know him, is uh, was a Vietnamese cardinal who was imprisoned under the communist regime for, I think, 13 years, um, a number of them in solitary confinement, and who suffered acutely, especially at the start of his imprisonment, this sense of separation from his flock and from his work for the Lord and from the uh, renewal and revitalization of the Catholic community in Vietnam that that had been flourishing at the time the regime took over. Mm -hmm. And in his spiritual diary, he traces this path of purification of his love of the Lord that he was asked to recall, like, your love is for me, not for the things that you can do for me, not for the ways that you think you can serve me or make my kingdom grow on earth, like you need only me. And Cardinal Vantoin verified this so much so that to to use a phrase of Father Dusani, by the end of his time of imprisonment, he was living with the the fantastic serenity of a cloistered monk. His restlessness purified his desires so that they were ordered to Christ and and not to his images.
1: Yeah, and it makes it possible that those years spent in prison aren't just lost time.
2: Mm, Aren't wasted, yeah. Yeah, that reminds me, um, Sophia, what you're saying. Father Jacques-Philippe uses the image of a lake uh, reflecting the sun. You know, our hearts are like a lake um, reflecting the sun. Mm. And as we become purified, strip away our images and our anxieties, the lake becomes more peaceful, and you can reflect the sun. And as this happens more and more, ultimately the goal is, you know, a mirror image. And I, re- I think back of the lakes we saw in um, Wyoming, Sophia, those like yeah. beautiful, beautiful mirror lakes. That's the goal. The goal is to have our hearts be so conformed to Christ, and to be able to reflect His glory to the whole world, to our fellow man, and you know, to ourselves, to be freed of. um freed of these disordered aspects of our identities.
1: Yeah, I love that image, Julie. It makes me think of Christ, one of his last words on the cross saying, I thirst, and Mother Teresa's reflections on Jesus not thirsting for water or wine, but thirsting for souls. Mm. And that's what he gives to us in the peace of heart is an unquenchable thirst that. Is only satisfied by him, but he only desires for it to be satisfied in the next life fully. Yeah. We do experience the satisfaction now, but it's it's with thirst. Yeah. And I mean, I think that can make you wonder about eschatology, like the next life. Like what does, what does that look like? Or like C.S. Lewis has, I can't remember what it's in. Maybe it's in The Great Divorce, where he talks about heaven kind of like as this endless pilgrimage and this beautiful image of nature where you're going further up and further in, like you're still continuing forward. You don't become like static sleepers in peace. Mm. So somehow like that desire is so transformed and redeemed and perfected that it's still moving. We're still becoming even even in heaven. I'm not an eschatological theologian, but <laughs> – could have told me. That yeah. corresponds to, <laughs> <laughs> to my desires.
0: Yeah, it makes me think about the purpose of life being to become someone who would enjoy heaven more, uh, which makes me think of one of my housemates is dating this lovely girl who was over the other day and shared about how much she enjoys Taco Bell again. Okay. Again, I really love her, but it struck me in that moment that because she's British, she doesn't know what good Mexican food is. And, and so, the, so she may have been satisfied by Taco Bell that night, but that's that's because she lacks an education in what pleasure is um, and like. Don't we all? Don't we? Mathematically, all? <laughs> we would say that Taco Bell is a local maximum. It's like it's a false peak enjoyment. Like you can do better. Um, and what is life but for her to discover Mexican food? Like, like as an analogy, for us, life is to discover what truly does satisfy our hunger. And our task, Adriana, as you said, it, it, there's a, a missionary dimension to this. Our task is because this eschatological reality that awaits us isn't individual but social as we've said before and so our task on this earth yes is to discover what satisfies us but also to shake others awake mm-hmm. from their choice to settle for less so i'm wondering if you have experiences of that where you see yourselves as prophets that awaken others to their own structural restlessness and uh, and i mean hopefully this podcast is something of that for for someone but Where else in your life do you see that being an aspect of your vocation, um, of your relationship with the mystery?
1: Well, I think, I mean, it's obvious to say, like, our friendship is that for me in a mutual way. And I think when I see it most clearly, it happens in mutuality, like, and in a way that surprises me. You've mentioned this with your relationship, Sophia, with your goddaughter, that she when she said the things about her relationship with you that were converting for her, they were like your weaknesses and failures. And yeah. that wasn't what you had intended. <laughs> Definitely today. not. And for me, it's similar. I One of my dearest friends, she wasn't living in the faith, but had always had like, she's a very dynamic personality, very charismatic, was really attracted to life. And we just got along so well, naturally. And I had read a book. It was a Protestant book called Wild at Heart, and it's written for, for Christian men who are bored with life. And <laughs> You're the and target audience. Yes, I was not the target audience. <laughs> I had read it, but really enjoyed it. And I just gave it to her when we were meeting up for drinks one time in downtown Seattle in our early 20s. We were both in the Navy. We hadn't seen each other in a long time. She was stationed over in Bremerton. I was in Seattle. And I didn't think anything of it. I just like, oh, I read this book. I didn't see her for months. We both went out to see. We met back up. And she's like, I've been trying to meet up with you. I needed to tell you, like, you've changed my life. Wow. And I just had no idea what she was even talking about. And she's like, Adriana, this book, this book that you gave me. And in that time that I had seen her... She had been living with her boyfriend, who's now her husband, but she moved out, she went to confession, had just like totally made these like life altering steps that had been patterns of her life for for many years and it was so just astonishing to me that she could accredit anything to me when you know i I didn't even use word, I just gave her a book and I suppose, must have conveyed through my own enthusiasm of it that she might enjoy it also, which prompted her to read it, that started a real journey for us because in that was born such a deep intimacy and friendship and then walking with her and her now husband, who was unbaptized at the time, totally uncatechized, like had barely even received initial proclamation of the gospel, to then walking with him coming into full communion with the church himself and, you know, he sobbed the day he was baptized and to see that he's, you know, an infantry Marine, not that that's, but like he was sobbing and it was just, I think, to see how Christ could use such a small, I just was close to it. I don't know what else. And that she would say it was because of me when obviously it wasn't like in Christ clearly wanted to show me that it wasn't too, lest I become too prideful. Yeah, that's such a clear example for me in my life of Christ using his thirst and implanting it in us.
0: That's beautiful.
1: And I think it's really small gestures like that in friendship and continued relationship and affirmation of the other that makes those moments possible. And it's a really slow work. And I think it can't be calculated because it's by God and it's surprising. So I think you can't go into friendship with people that you hope for their conversion and you I mean you can hope for that but you can't go into it like each time like okay lord today is going to be the day that you give me the words to have like the perfect argument that convinces them.
2: Yeah, that's
0: that's violence. That's not friendship.
2: Yeah. I think it goes back to the importance of loving our freedom and the freedom of others and if you have a positive gaze on human freedom as God does and as we should, coupled with the certainty that God is the answer to the desire of every human heart, we have nothing to fear because we can know that anyone who follows their freedom, it will lead them to God. Um, Yeah, I see that in your example, Adriana, this kind of friendship that you're talking about is born out of the love of the freedom for the other. Um, And I think that having the certainty that this is a gift from God that he uses for his own glory, it allows us to be in peace even when we have differences among each among ourselves. Yeah, yeah,
0: thank you. It's clear from what you're sharing that prophecy is an act of love born born out of friendship and extended in freedom to the freedom of the other. Mm-hmm. And, and that's really helpful for me. Um, I think one of the places in my own life that I see the task of the prophet, although... <laughs> As has become clear, I don't think we're the best judges necessarily of how the Lord is using us <laughs> in this respect, but insofar as I am aware of it, um, I think that I'm I'm called to be a prophet in academia of, of the meaning of work, mm. because perhaps this will not come as a surprise to those of you who are familiar with university life, but… In Cambridge, it's very easy to find people who idolize their CVs or the acclaim of the world, uh, the best grants and awards and publications, and yeah, just a general gaze on our work as something... As if it were the fruit of our own two hands, and if, as if the value of it were the measure that we have and the measures that others impose on our work. Um, and for me, this is not enough. When this is the criterion for the value of my work, I suffocate. Um, instead, I have a deep restlessness that is dissatisfied with anything other than an inherent dignity to my work mm-hmm. that goes beyond any of these reductive perspectives and that remains in success and in failure, my work is a response to one who has called me to this task of uncovering the truth of reality and putting it in the service of justice and not a function of power or wealth or vanity. And there are many opportunities with my collaborators and my colleagues for this to become clear. Not that I, not that I always do a good job of, of living it, let alone of witnessing to it, um but in success when we have you know a paper accepted or in failure when i'm trying for the 12th time to run an analysis that won't work like i have the opportunity to make it clear to the people that i work with that that the value of my work remains that it's not a function of these things mm-hmm. and that this is a more fulfilling way to live because i can i can sleep at night Work is neither my enemy nor my idol, mm. and and far from you know far from stifling my creativity as a scientist, this is something that begets in me a greater creativity, a greater capacity for taking risks and making connections and being interdisciplinary. And um, so it's something that's fruitful for my work to have a measure that is not the measure of the world. And so I've had some interesting conversations, you know, around this, and I and I really do think that in the world of work we have. An incredible opportunity to witness to others and to awaken them from the numbness that the cultural ideals of our time impose on us, these reductions that we live. And this reminds me of a book that I recently read, a stunning book that that my father gave me, Advent of the Heart by Alfred Delp, uh, a Jesuit in Nazi Germany. Um, And who was writing Advent sermons and reflections, some of them from Tegel Prison, um, where he would eventually be killed, but reflecting on the essential Advent character of life, that we are awaiting the coming of the Lord structurally. Mm -hmm. And he says in these meditations that it's because we've forgotten this desire, that we've suppressed this restlessness, that we've anesthetized our longing, that ideologies have taken hold, and he's thinking of Nazism, but, you know, put your ideology of choice in here, that these ideologies can oppress people and suppress the actual fulfillment of our lives. And so he says the task of the Christian people is to shake people awake to be figures of absurdity sometimes, but to remind the populace of, of what it is that we long for, which is so much more than than the status quo. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's been a text that's accompanying me in my work in the secular environment in Cambridge, like asking to be a prophet like he was, um, even at a cost.
1: Yeah, I love that, Sophia, because it really clarifies for me that that part of the essential nature of discipleship and the possibility of helping others encounter the Lord too must include like what you said, the public dimension of of the internal reality of your own encounter with God. And that takes courage and an openness to continued rejection along the journey. But also what you said, like that rejection of others isn't the criterion for you and coming back to Christ and asking him to meet you again there. That allows you to go forward.
0: Yeah, and we talked about how your circumstances are no longer an enemy when you make friends with your restlessness, and and I would just briefly add that that other people are no longer an enemy either. I think befriending your own needs and dissatisfactions is a source of tremendous compassion, and I would say like a spontaneous sympathy with others. Yeah, I think befriending my restlessness helps me not be be scandalized by myself or by others, but... To see the the common humanity and the common desire mm-hmm. and to be aware that what I'm living is for them, too, that their destiny is united with mine. And so to ask for an answer to come to them in their restless desires, just as I also ask for it to come to me.
1: Thank you. That's really beautiful. Well, maybe we should wrap it up on that note. Sophia, I think you had the media recommendation for today.
0: Yes, our media recommendation this month is the song Ulysses by Josh Garrels, an incredible singer-songwriter with yeah, his lyrics are stunning. Um and he's he's from South Bend originally, so uh bonus points there. But this song I think captures the role of restlessness in leading us to a home where we will be satisfied and the anguish of the heart, but it's an anguish that is in a dynamic relationship to an other. So I would highly recommend that you listen to this song. We will link it in the show notes together with all of the other resources and uh, books and things that we've referenced on today's episode. Do either of you have a monthly challenge for us?
1: Yes, I have a monthly challenge. I would like to just propose meeting up with a friend, sharing this episode with them too as a prompting both listening and then really like discerning what are historic places of restlessness in your life? How have you treated them? How do you treat them? And how can you befriend those places of restlessness? And I think doing that in friendship will be very fruitful.
0: Thank you so much. Thank you to all our listeners for joining us today. As ever, you can find all of our archives on our website, which is pilgrimsoulpodcast.com. If you have any questions or topic recommendations, or if you really love Taco Bell and would like to tell me that I'm wrong, please (laughs) do let us know. You can contact us through that page or through our email, pilgrimsoulpodcast at gmail.com. But we're looking forward to being with you again next month. And in the meantime, please know of our prayers for you and please pray for us.
2: Thanks, everybody. Bye, everyone.